0: You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, Philippians chapter 4 is where you need to be and it's going to really help you to have your Bible open and in front of you. And I actually have to do two introductions uh, this morning. I feel like since I've been, I'm gone for a couple of weeks and we've been out of the, uh, the set of sermons that we've, we've kind of been working through, that I need just to reintroduce that whole set of sermons. So if you're, if you've kind of walked in or stumbled in out of nowhere uh, this morning and this is your first time, then you have walked in on part six of a set of sermons called Gospel, Greed, and Generosity, where we're serving some of what the Bible has to say about money and possessions. And and let me just give you, remind you of a couple of the reasons why it's really important for us to do this series, for us to have this conversation about what is for many of us a really uncomfortable topic of money and possessions. And and here's one reason why, and and we we could list probably five or six, but let me just give you two. Here's one reason, is that money and possessions or money sickness or greed this inordinate desire for money and material things it's a serious sin like in other words it's very serious before god and the danger of the sin is very serious to you money and possessions have a unique power in your life and in my life to dull our spiritual senses uh, senses to, to deaden our desires for god To absolutely shipwreck our faith. Money and possessions has that sort of a unique power in your life. It's got that sort of a seductive voice, not only in me, but in you and in us. So it's really important that we have good conversations to see what the Bible says about these things. That that the Bible sounds this consistent warning that we need to pay attention to this. This is the reason. This seriousness and the danger of money and possessions is the reason that there's 2,350 verses in the Bible that deal with it. It's the reason that three of the Ten Commandments deal with money and possessions. It's the reason that 15% of the words of Jesus have money and possessions that they're dealing with. It's serious. It's dangerous. This led uh, Craig Bloomberg, who wrote a book on money and possessions, surveying all that the Bible had to say about it. He said, it's arguable that materialism is the single biggest competitor with authentic Christianity for the hearts and souls of millions in our world today, including many in the invisible church, you and I. That if you want to think about one of your main competitors to Jesus in your life, money and possessions is it. One of the main competitors for you and I. So it's dangerous. It's serious in that sense. But secondly, it's not, only, it's not only serious, it's also really subtle. In other words, it's really difficult to see. I, greed is so commonplace around us that it's almost, it, it's, it goes undetectable. Like it's almost undetectable by us. We, we just don't have eyes to see it. It's almost like being in a dark room uh, long enough where your eyes kind of adjust to the darkness, where, where you would swear to someone it's not even dark in the room. Like, this is the cultural kind of climate that you and I live in. It makes it really, really difficult to see greed and money sickness and the danger of money and possessions. Randy Alcorn, in his book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, says it like this. If we were to gain God's perspective, even for a moment, about money and possessions, even for a moment, and were to look at the way we, like you and I, go through life accumulating and hoarding and displaying our things— we would have the same feelings of horror and pity that any sane person has when he views people in an asylum endlessly beating their heads against the wall. Now, here's the problem. Beating our heads against the wall, the problem in our culture is it seems normal to us. That if this is how we're viewing money and possessions, as an insane person beating their heads against the wall, the problem is insanity is normal to you and I. Insanity is commonplace. So it just makes it really difficult to get a good grasp on these things. It makes it almost impossible to see. One of the most, um, I think, just striking things that I have read over the last um, three, four, five months, just setting up for this set of sermons, has been a quote by John Stott. And, And listen to what he says about our culture's materialistic bent. And we read this several weeks ago, but let me read it to you again. Our blindness to materialism is similar to the Western culture's blindness to the sin of slavery in the 18th and 19th centuries likely future generations should they look back will regard our day with the same perplexity how could they not have seen it you know like when you think back about slavery in america like for me my reflexive response to that is how in the world does that happen how does that happen And do you think that there's a chance maybe five, six, seven, ten generations down the line looking back at you and I and our generation that they might look back at how we think about money and possessions and think how in the world did they justify that? How how did they how did they go there? How did they do that? And listen, here's my concern and really the angst of this series is I think there is a legitimate like concern that that could happen for you and I. That there's going to be a day where somebody's going to look back at our culture and say that. And we all desperately need to have the Bible shake us like, into reality. To open up our eyes so we can see these things. We desperately need to be reacquainted with what the Bible has to say about money and possessions. Okay, so um, that, that's why we're doing it. That was intro one. Here's intro two and we're going for this morning. Um, Okay, so uh, one of my favorite authors is a guy named Jerry Bridges. Um, Five years ago, and by the way, if you want something to put on a reading list, just grab a book from him. I think it would be Food for Your Soul, Jerry Bridges. Um, Five or six years ago, he wrote a book called Respectable Sins, and in that book, he's not calling any sin respectable. He's saying that culturally, we have put the stamp of respectability on some sins, that there is some sins in our culture that, that we would look at and deem as acceptable. Th- those, those sins are tolerable. They're, they're respectable sins. So I, I think it's kind of an, an, an interesting idea for a book, but the nine or ten sins that he comes up with, I think is just an intriguing list of those things that we have deemed respectable or tolerable. Okay, so, so here is sin number one that he puts um, down on the list in his book. Sin number one is the sin of ungodliness, Okay, now here's what ungodliness is. It is living like you're a practical atheist. So in other words, you would come in on a Sunday morning, and I mean, it is, God is great, we're singing, we love the Bible, we love all of that, we are all about God. But Monday morning hits and your marriage falls apart, and literally the way that you would respond and act would would give evidence that you do not believe God exists. This is ungodliness. That on Tuesday when you're doing a business deal, it is as if God does not exist the way you think about it, the way you speak about it, as if God doesn't exist. The way that you would parent, the way that you would speak to your kids, the way your marriage plays out. It's as if God doesn't exist in those things. We're living as practical atheists. And I think we've probably earned that one. Here's his second one. The second thing he puts in there, respectable sins, is the sin of worry and anxiety. Now, now think about this. I think we've earned this one too. Think about the last time you've had a moment where you're just like, I am fried, I am stressed out, I'm freaking out, I'm worried, I'm anxious, I, I mean I, my heart is running at a million miles an hour. Think about that moment. Now ask yourself the question, was, was there a moment when, when that's going on where it clicks in you and you think, wow, this is sin? And you know what's funny to me is I don't think it does for most of us. I mean, worry is a respectable sin. It's an approved sin. It's one of those that that we would look at and tolerate, right? It's ironic to me that in our culture, the only one calling worry sin is God, right? So it's, it's a respectable sin. I think it's earned its way onto the list. But then you've got number three. The third of kind of the respectable sins that he lays out is the sin of discontentment. Discontentment. And I think we've earned this one, too. I think if you were to look at our culture, I I think you'd probably agree with me in this. I think one of the defining marks of our culture is discontentment, that there is a way in which our culture is based on discontentment, but it's a defining mark of our culture. And, And when you start to look at the fruit of discontentment around you, you start to see that the fruit of discontentment is destroying a lot of things. So just think with me about the fruit of discontentment. What discontentment leads to think about adultery. You know, adultery is the fruit of discontentment. It's looking at your wife or your husband and saying you won't or you can't satisfy me. So I'm going to go where grass is greener. So why don't you take a back seat? I'm I'm going this way. Think about divorce. Most divorces come about because of discontentment. That grass has got to be greener somewhere else. I mean, we could talk forever. We could talk about the predominant view of ladies or men when they look in the mirror, and the discontentment that they see, and all the different craziness that that leads to. We could talk about work environments and how most of us are discontentment in our work and how it leads to having a really hard time submitting well to authority. We could talk about how it comes out in complaining and grumbling. anyone guilty of that lately? Just what, what the Old Testament would call like a, a murmuring. Just complaining against God and against everything. So, so there's a, the fruit of discontentment is so widespread that it's mind boggling. But if you want to like zero in on what I think is the most vivid picture of discontentment in our culture, it is in the way we think about money and possessions. It is crazy. So so our culture, um, a lot of people would define it or talk about it in terms of it's a consumeristic culture. Okay, now let me define what a consumer culture means or what that is. That means that, that culturally we have bought into this belief or this theory that accumulating more things is good for us. Because that's what a consumer culture is. That the more I can get, the better off I'll be. So when we say we've got a consumer culture, that's what it means, that we have bought in culturally to that. That that having things equals happiness. Having equals happiness. That is a consumer culture. Okay, now it's easy for you and I to hear that and think this. Well, at least I don't believe that. Well, I doubt it. I doubt it. See, this is the the ironic thing about when, when something is like a cultural thing for us, See, when something is cultural, no one has to sit you down in a classroom and say, okay, now here's what we're going to talk about next. I'm going to teach you about how to be a consumer culture. So sit down and and let me show you how having equals happiness. That's not how it works. See, when something is cultural, it gets ingrained into the fabric of what we do in life. It's just like this subtle thing that's always running in the background, soaking everything that we see and do. So see, it's not just as easy as saying, well, I, I don't believe that. Well, the problem is you probably do believe that because it's a cultural thing. It's ingrained. So you don't have to be formally taught these things. You're just caught them by, by, by living in a culture of them. That having equals happiness. I'll guarantee if we followed you around for a day, we would see evidence numerous times a day that you really believe that, that having equals happiness. That if I can just get more things, then I'll be okay. If I, if I can just get to the next level, then I'll be okay. If I could just get this job, then I'd be okay. If I could just get this house, this new gadget, I would be okay. That having equals happiness. So, so you see it everywhere. You see it in consumer debt. So, so think about what consumer debt is. It's the fruit of having equals happiness. It's looking at a TV that we really don't need and thinking this, if I don't have that TV, I'm going to die. Now you wouldn't verbalize it like that, but that's what we think. So, so what do we do? We will not let any obstacle, AKA, I don't have money to buy it, stand in our way. So we'll get the credit card out and we'll do whatever it takes to get that thing. And we could talk about clothes, we could talk about houses, we could talk about cars, we could talk about whatever. It, it's just this consumeristic mindset. And it's not just seen in consumer debt, it's seen in the accumulation of things. So if, if we were just to, to go to your house and open up the door and look in a closet, chances are we would all think, wow, there's a lot of stuff in there. Wow, that's packed. Like I I'd opened the door and I about got killed. And if we were to go in our attic and see the amount of stuff we have, I mean, if we just took a step back, could we not all agree it's crazy? The amount of stuff we accumulate. See, it's all on a brute level. It's this belief that that having equals happiness. And culturally, we are taught this from a thousand different ways. Think about advertisements. So we're talking commercials We're talking billboards. We're talking junk mail. We're talking pop-ups when you're on the... We're talking all of that. You know what they're trying to convince you of? Having equals happiness. You know what they have convinced you of? Having equals happiness. See, I, I love power tools. And half the time, I don't know that I can't live without a power tool until I see an ad for a new power tool. And they've got me. I can't live without the thing. See, this is all of us. See, One of the ways you can think, I think it would be healthy for you to think about advertising, is that is war being waged on your contentment. So beware when you go to the mall just to walk around. Beware when you open up the ads just to take a look at what's new at Home Depot. You need to be real careful because that is waging war on on your contentment. It's trying to convince you that that if you're going to survive, if you're going to make it, that you're going to have to have this to do it. Having equals happiness. Bigger is better. Since 1950, the average floor plan of houses in America has doubled since 1950. Bigger is better. More is better. Having equals happiness. So I I, I say all of that just to say, can you see how we need the Bible to shake us out of this stuff? For the Spirit of God to come and wipe like the fog from our eyes and to reacquaint us with this biblical idea of contentment? I mean, we need this desperately, don't we? I know I do. I need it desperately for passages like Ephes- or Philippians 4 to come to life for me, like to seep into the bottom parts of my soul. So, so let's read this together, starting in verse 10, Philippians 4. Paul says this, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. Okay, so I, I just want to kind of frame this whole morning around three questions. And here's the first question. What is contentment? What, what, what does that mean? So I, I want to give you a kind of a working definition of when we say contentment, when, when Paul says it in this passage, I've learned to be content. What does Paul mean by contentment? Okay, so I, I think this would be a good working definition that, that we can go with. Christian, and this will be on the screen for you, I believe. Christian contentment is having a heart that is fully satisfied in God regardless of the circumstances. Having a heart that is fully satisfied, happy, joyful, content in God, fully satisfied in God regardless of the circumstances. So, okay, now I I think it might be healthy just to think about what the opposite of contentment is. If contentment is on one side of the spectrum, covetousness is on the other. Covetousness is, if I'm going to be happy, I've got to have the next thing, the new thing, this possession, that thing. I've got to have more if I'm going to be happy. Contentment is, I am fully satisfied in God alone. My heart is fully satisfied, need nothing else. My heart is fully satisfied in God alone, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the situation. Okay, let me just break that down into three parts here and highlight three different little components of this. The first component is that word heart. Do you see that word heart? That it's a heart issue. That means it's an inward thing, not an outward thing. That that contentment or the lack of is seen in a million different external behaviors. But contentment is not an external behavior. Contentment is an inward issue. It's a heart issue. It's a heart that, that is satisfied in God. It, it's inward. So I think it's really important. When we're talking contentment, it shows itself for the lack thereof in a million different behaviors. But that is the fruit of contentment or a lack of. Contentment is an inward thing. It's a heart issue. Okay, now, now the second piece of that is a heart that is fully satisfied in God. It's a heart That that the joy, the satisfaction of that heart is totally in God, nothing else. A heart that is fully satisfied, brimming with joy, brimming with hope, brimming with happiness. A a heart that is fully satisfied in God. Okay, now, now let me just clarify this. Contentment does not mean that we can't enjoy the gifts that God gives us. And I'll just use kids as an illustration of this. Contentment doesn't mean that we can't enjoy our kids. It would be glorifying to God and pleasing to God for you to enjoy them. But contentment means this. Listen, listen carefully to this. Contentment means that your joy is not tied to your kids. Contentment means that your joy is not tied to your house, to your car, to a possession, to a person, to a place. Contentment means your joy is tied firmly and fully to God and nothing else. You're free to enjoy anything God gives you, but your your satisfaction is not dependent upon God's gifts for you. It's only dependent upon who God is for you. Okay, that's contentment. It's a heart that is fully satisfied in God. Joy and, and, and satisfaction tied directly to God and nothing else fully satisfied in god and you see this last part regardless of the circumstances verse 11 paul says it this way whatever the situation um, verse 12 in any and every sort of circumstance he's saying in in all of it that, that i can abound or i can have nothing i can be honored or i can be humiliated i can be hungry or i can be well fed I can have money, I cannot have money. I can have things, I cannot have things. But none of those things, having it or not having it, affects my contentment. Because contentment is not determined by external things, it's, it's determined by an internal thing and my satisfaction in God. So, so contentment is there regardless of what befalls us, regardless of where we are, regardless of our marriage, regardless of our kids, regardless of our bank account, regardless of what we do have or what we don't have. It's regardless of all of that. It's a regardless thing. It happens regardless. Doesn't matter what's going on. It was interesting, um, yesterday, if you lived in Midlothian, or probably the surrounding area, there was a point in the afternoon where Hannah and Caleb and I were playing in our backyard. And uh, uh, all of a sudden, the wind, out of nowhere, is like, Wow. It's like a tornado in our neighborhood right now. And so, I mean, it's whipping through the backyard. Trees are whipping around. And then all of a sudden it starts to rain. And so we make kind of a break for the back door. And we get into the house and shut the door. And you know the amazing thing about not living in a teepee and actually in a house? Like literally, when when we shut the door, it was complete calm. Complete calm. I mean, it was as if there was not a hurricane outside all of a sudden. It was as if there was no rain outside. OK, now I think it's an apt metaphor for contentment. See, contentment is having a joy in God, Like it's having the door of your heart sealed by a satisfaction in God that come hell or high water outside. it has no bearing on it. Completely fine. Completely good, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of what sort of suffering we're going, regardless we're okay there's a part of us that can't be touched by it that's contentment okay now let me clarify just real quick what i'm not saying with contentment I'm three quick things here what i'm not saying one is is i'm not saying in contentment that we should deny difficult situations that the bible is real clear as it calls across across and it looks at pain and calls pain pain it's not out to deny that it's not out to deny that although we're calm on the inside of our house, that there's not a hurricane on the outside. It's not, it's not saying that. It calls across a cross. Secondly, contentment does not mean that we cannot take humble complaints to God and pray that God would change our circumstances. Contentment does not mean that. Okay? There is plenty of room in the scripture for you to be humble in your request for God to change things around you. Number three, Contentment does not mean that we cannot use lawful means to secure change in circumstances In other words when you're seriously wrong And it would be lawful for you to change your circumstances by using just proper means of law and court It means that you can do that. That's okay. That's not that's not contrary to contentment contentment All those things would fit into the boundaries of contentment But here's what I am saying that contentment means that when life falls apart that you don't fall apart Contentment means when everything is falling apart around you, that you don't push the panic button and like fall off the cliff of crazy. Okay, you don't do that. that. That You don't lose it. You, you don't lose absolutely all control. You don't freak out. You don't push the panic button. You don't rebel against God. You don't pridefully shake a fist at God. Contentment means that you have got this full satisfaction in God that is there regardless of your circumstances. Now, let me just push pause here and ask you the question. How, how, how do you feel like you are in contentment? I mean, do you feel like, in, like, maybe you could think about this spectrum of covetousness over here. I need this. I need that. I, for me to be happy, I've got to have this. That, that's over there in contentment. Fully satisfied in God alone. I can have it or I, I, I don't have to have it. Where do you feel like you are in that? You know, and I think this is one of just the scary and one of the things that makes this question kind of difficult is sometimes you don't know how content you are until God rips everything from your life. Sometimes you don't know if you love your kids inordinately until you lose them. Sometimes you don't know if you love your house in an inappropriate way until you lose it. If you love your money in an inappropriate way until you lose everything. But how, how do you feel like you're doing here? Do you feel like you have a heart that is fully satisfied in God? regardless of of what befalls you, this is contentment. Okay. Second question. Question number two goes like this. Why is contentment desirable? So, so why is contentment a good thing? When you think about this passage in Philippians four, Paul commends, he doesn't command it in in this passage, but he commends it as a good thing. He's saying, look at what, what I'm doing here. This is good. I I don't need things to to have a full heart. I, I don't need money. I, I can have it with money or without money. I, I don't have to be honored. I can be humiliated. And my heart is good. I am content. So, so he's commending. Now, why is he commending it? Okay, now I, I want to give you just two quick reasons. We could spend forever on this, but two quick reasons why uh, contentment is commendable or desirable. And, and here's the first one. One reason I think Paul would commend it is because God commands it. That this is a command in the Bible. Now, I'm going to read a passage in Hebrews 13. It's going to be on the screen for you. Hebrews thirteen five, 5. Um, God, through the author of uh, the writer of Hebrews says this, keep your life free from the love of money. And can I just make a quick comment there? If you don't have a plan to keep your life free from the love of money, you probably love money. If you don't have a plan to keep your life free from a love of possessions, you probably love your possessions. If you don't have a plan to keep your heart free from a love of your house, you probably love your house too much. This is the seductive nature of money and possessions. He says, keep your heart free from the love of money. And then he goes on, and be content with what you have. If you want to know, if you want maybe one test of how um, free you are from the love of money, just ask yourself, am I absolutely content with what I have? Absolutely content. Heart fully satisfied, regardless of if I have the next thing, a new thing, this thing. Fully content. Fully content. Okay, but I want you to see here in Hebrews 13, that this is a command of God. So what is not commanded in Philippians 4 is commanded in Hebrews 13. That God is saying, you need to have, I'm commanding you to have a heart that is fully satisfied in me. Now, now I just think about this. I, I think it's really good for you to think about why God commands that. And, and let me just tell you why. Because discontentment is offensive to God. Now, I just want to say this one more time. Because this is a respectable sin for a lot of us in the room, a tolerable sin. Discontentment is offensive to God. See, if you think about what you're doing when you're discontent, here's what what it looks like. You're saying, God, I know you promised to be all my heart needs, but I think you are a liar. And so God, why don't you stay over there and I'm going to go test some other things out maybe if I could put it in a metaphor for you, take a marriage and and you've got a man that is married to a wife and the man looks at his wife and says, Hey, I I know that I should probably be content here and okay here, but listen, I'm not. And and so here's what I want you to do. I I want you to go ahead and just stay back there in the back room. And I'm going to go ahead and parade a few other lovers into the house. And I'm going to see if they could satisfy stuff for me that you couldn't see that is what your discontentment is doing that to God. See, this is why it's offensive to God. This is why when you look at the Old Testament, God's ready to kill people over discontentment. I mean, just read your Old Testament, read Exodus, and you're going to see a God who is very offended by discontentment. Like offended enough to say, I am about to kill everyone. And can we all just say, thank you, God, for killing Jesus and not us for discontentment? I mean, aren't we grateful for that? But, But I need you to hear this. It would do you well to think about how discontentment is offensive to God, how ugly it is before God, how, how, how much it despises God. You do well to think about that. That's why it's commanded to, to be content, that our hearts should be content with what we have. But it's not just because it's commanded that it's desirable. It's also because it's really good for you. It, it's a command by God, but it's a command for your good. Like when God commands you to be content, he's looking at you and he's saying, this is great for you. It's not just that it's disgusting to me to be discontent. It's that it's actually great for you. Okay, now 1 Timothy 6, I think is probably one of the uh, other places in the Bible that is the place to go to see teaching on contentment. Let me just read a couple of passages or a couple of verses out of this. This is 1 Timothy 6, 6-8. through 8. It'll be on the screen for you. You can flip there if you want. Either way. 1 Timothy 6, 6-8 through 8 says this. Now there is great gain. And if you're looking at your Bible, you ought to circle, highlight, star, whatever you have to do to remember that. There is not just gain, but there is great gain. Like abundant gain. A lot of gain. Like overflowing gain. There is great gain in what? In godliness with contentment that being content equals great gain for you that, that being content is not just a way of pleasing God in the sense that he's he likes it for us to be content he takes joy in that but, but being content is actually great gain for you I mean would we not all agree that a person that that is untouched by things happening to them is a good thing that when their life is turned upside down, that they're not turned upside down? I mean, a heart that is fully satisfied in God regardless of the circumstances, wouldn't we all say that's a desirable thing? I wish I had a little more of that. I wish I didn't fluctuate so much depending on what this person said. If I have that, don't have that. I mean, isn't that a good thing? Contentment is, it is a beautiful thing. It is a mercy from God to you. It is a grace from God that produces great gain in your life. It is, listen, it is great for your marriage. Do you know what every one of our marriages could use? A heavy dose of contentment. It is good for your parenting. It is good for your job. It is good for your friendships. It is good for your life. There is great gain in godliness with contentment. That there is great gain, not in gaining more stuff, but in not needing to gain more stuff. There is great gain in that. Great gain, he's saying. Okay, now this is where you need to take a deep breath. Because he's about to say something that that we desperately need to hear, but this is going to be hard to hear. Look at verse 8. He's going to show us what we should be content in. But if we have food and clothing, you might underline those words, food and clothing with these, we will be content. In other words, that God, God should have your heart so satisfied in him that that food and clothing, you're not going to believe this. I looked this up in the Greek this week, and you're not going to believe what this verse means. It actually means that we should be content with food and clothing, Can you believe that it actually means food and clothing and you should be just fine? Now think about what does it not say? It doesn't say you should be content as long as your life's going well, as long as your job's good, as long as you're getting paid well, as long as your marriage is good, your kids are obeying, everything's kind of, it doesn't say any of that, does it? As long as you have your health, doesn't say any of that. It says food and clothing. That's it that you should be content with that. See, if you want to know one of our biggest problems, it's me, it's you, it's us. We have inflated desires, don't we? One of my favorite verses in in the Bible, later on in Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, God makes, I think, one of the most beautiful promises to us in the Bible. I will supply all of your needs according to my glorious riches in Christ Jesus. But the operative word there is need. See, need in the Bible... Equals food and clothing. Need to you and I equals everything but food and clothing, doesn't it? See, it's not just food. It's give me a steak. And it better be like Del Frisco quality. Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, every night. It's not just food. It's a certain kind of food that we want. See, it's not just clothing. It's clothing from that store with that brand and a lot of it. See, clothing means you have a shirt in your closet to wear. A shirt. But see, for us, clothing means that brand, that store, and a closet full of everything. Do you see our problem? Inflated needs. See, it's not a house. It's that certain house. It's not a car. See, a car is point A to point B is good enough for me see, it's a certain car that's going to give off a certain kind of symbol to people as they see me in that car. That's what we need. Do, do you see our problem? That we have this inflated view of what we need. I, I was recently listening to somebody talk about sumo wrestlers. So you've got guys that are like four, five, six, seven hundred pounds. And, and they were talking about the sort of training that goes into being a sumo wrestler. But that's not easy stuff, you know. And so um, so they talked about one of the ways, the things they had to do was train to gain weight. So, so to gain weight, the first thing they had to do was to consistently stretch their stomach out where they could eat more and more food to gain more and more weight. So they had to stretch their appetite. And is that not an apt metaphor for all of us in the room? That we have these stretched appetites? That for us, need means so much. We are sumo in our needs. We need everything. The way we talk about need is absolutely ridiculous. Would you agree with that? It's crazy. We have these inflated, like inflated needs that makes First Timothy 6, 8 seem ludicrous to us. I love what uh, G.K. Uh, Chesterton said. L- listen to what he said about this issue. He says there are two ways to get enough. You have two ways to have enough. So in your life right now, there's two ways for you to have enough stuff. Here's way number one. One way is to accumulate more and more. That's that's one way you can have enough stuff. Here's the other way. The other is to desire less. Can I just tell you what every one of us need? This is me. this This is all of us. We need to desire a whole heck of a lot less. We need to desire a whole lot less. And you know what we'll find? That we'd have enough if we desired less. We'd be just fine with it. And so I want to do something that that I don't think in three years I've done this. I, I want to stop in the middle here before we kind of finish this up. And I want to actually give you a second just right now to pray this for you. Knowing that you and I both have inflated kind of views of what we need. I want us to stop and pray. If you're a dad, to pray this over your family, a mom over your family. If it's you, just over your heart right now. We're just gonna stop. Take a moment to allow you to stop in your seat, get before God right now, and to beg him, just as an act of grace to you, to help you desire less. But will you do that just over your own heart real quick? Just to help you, just say, God, will you please? Would you be gracious enough to help me want less than I want. I have an inflated view of need. And God, I pray that you'd be merciful to us in this way, that for dads in the room, that you would be merciful to them in shrinking what they think they need in life for moms in the room that think that if they can just get this look, look look this way when they look in the mirror, if they can just get this thing, if they can just have this position or this, God, I pray that you would just shrink our desire. That You'd help us know that those things don't equal enough. God, God, would you help us be content with basics? God, will you help us in that? We are never going to be the sort of generous people that you desire us to be without that. And so God, I pray by your grace that you would do that for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I'm going to land the plane um, with the last question. So question one is, what is it? Question two is, why is it desirable? And question three is, how do we get it? How do we get it? So so if, if contentment is, is good and, and we want it, how, how do we go about getting it? And, and let me just start by, by just a preface to what I'm about to say with this. Contentment is only made possible by you being a new creation. In other words, what creates the capacity for contentment is God saving you and making you a Christian. To say this clearly, contentment is impossible apart from God reorienting the desires of your heart to where you want new and different things. Contentment is only possible by you being a new creation. It's only possible by God saving you through the work of Jesus for you. It's only possible from there. That's starting point. But in light of that, now we can read um, Philippians 4 verse 11, where Paul says this, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned. I want you to underline that word learned. That is a huge word. I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. Now, here's what Paul is saying. I had to learn some things to be content. That it didn't just come to me. Like the default mode of our heart is discontentment. That's default. That's who we are by nature. And when God saves us, he gives us the capacity for contentment. But it takes some lessons that we have to learn. There's a lot we have to know to be content. We have to get in the school of contentment and allow God to teach us some things. Now, again, we could spend like all day, a few weeks here. But let me just give you two big categories, like two prerequisite classes or lessons that we've got to get these things if we're ever going to be content. Here's number one. First lesson that we've got to learn is about those things that cannot satisfy our soul. That we have got to know about all of those things out there that would promise to to satisfy you, but they can't do it. They don't have the capacity to do it. We have to learn about all of those things that cannot satisfy us. Okay, so I want to give you a test run um, with this real quick. It's a biblical picture of a man who was on the search for satisfaction. So so he's going to test it all. It's our man Solomon. Y'all heard of him? He wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. It's right after Proverbs. And part of Ecclesiastes, he is on a search for satisfaction. Okay, now you've got to know this about our man Solomon, though. Solomon was, the Bible would consider him the wisest person that has ever lived and the wealthiest. Wisest and wealthiest. So when he's about to do something, he's probably going to do it in a pretty good way. And he's going to have unlimited resources to make it happen. So he is on the quest for what will quench the deep thirst in his soul. What can actually satisfy me? I'm going to find it wherever it is. I'm going to test it all until I get it. So so he starts this experiment. What is it out there that can satisfy me? Now, before we move on here, and and I illustrate this for you, uh, can can I just make sure you know that you're in the same experiment that Solomon's in? Every one of us in the room is looking for that thing that will satisfy him. Every one of us. Some of us right now think that if we could just get this house, it would do it. If we could just get this amount of money in the bank, it would do it. If we could just make this happen or get to this place or have this person then we would have it. Every one of us is on the search for what will satisfy our soul. You might not verbalize it like that, but it's the reason you're doing what you're doing. Chances are it's the reason you made like your last 15 purchases. That we're all on this search with Solomon. Now this is what Solomon um, tested. His, te- his first test was pleasure. Now, let me read this in, in um, Ecclesiastes 2 verse 1. He said this, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. So, so his first rattled out of the box was pleasure. This man, Solomon starts throwing parties that are unprecedented in their proportion. Unprecedented. In first Kings four, there's an illustration of what it would require for Solomon to throw a party. It just lists all the ingredients that it took. All the resources. It's estimated by commentators that that would feed somewhere between 15 and 20,000 people. This is not a backyard barbecue. This is not get a few neighbors over. This is huge. This is Solomon unlimited resources saying, I am going to test pleasure. The party scene to its full, to its max. I am going all in chips, all in. Will this satisfy? And here's his conclusion. It did not quench the thirst in his soul. So, so he goes on. His second test was possessions. Um, Starting in verse 4 in Ecclesiastes 2, it says this. So he he goes on from the party scene and he says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from from which to water the forest of growing trees. So he's done the party thing and now he's going to move on. He's going to make a life. He's going to do something, accomplish something, acquire some things. So, So now he starts with a house. So he's going to build a big, gigantic house. Now, in that same time period, he also built the temple. Now, if you kind of read back to your Old Testament, the temple was unbelievable. If it still existed, it would kind of be like one of those seven wonders of the world type incredible. It took him seven years to build the temple. It took him 14 years to build this house. I mean, this house is like, take our biggest house. It's kind of the, the outhouse, the little shed on the back 40 of his place. I mean, this is like unlimited wealth all going in to test this. If I can just acquire, if I can just have, I'd be okay. So, so he, he goes the house route and then he says that he goes into gardening and planting. It's going to say in some translations that he made a forest for himself. Last year, I planted a garden. Solomon is planting a forest. How do you even plant? How do you even do a forest? Is that even possible? Right? And so, I mean, this is unlimited wealth acquiring, accumulating, building. And then it says these, that he makes these ponds of water to irrigate this forest to be built. And you can still go to Israel today and see where these ponds are that Solomon built. This man went all in with possessions. If I can just acquire, will I be okay? His conclusion. Possessions do not quench the thirst in my soul. They don't quench it. A forest, a house a thousand times bigger than anything you could imagine to, it doesn 't quench his thirst, so so he goes on, test number three: ease and comfort um, this is um Verse seven of chapter two, he says this, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. So he went from building and accumulating and acquiring and spinning his wheels, doing all of that. And now he's going to sit back and let people do everything for him so he can buy whatever job he needs done. If he wants breakfast cooked, somebody will cook it. All he has to do is wake up and eat it. He doesn't have to lift a finger if he doesn't want to, if he needs his pools cleaned, He'll get them clean. If he needs his forest watered, he'll get them watered. He doesn't have to do anything. Listen, anything Solomon did not want to do, he didn't have to do it. Can you imagine that? He didn't have to do it. Everything he wanted done that he didn't want to do, hire it out. Just find someone. His conclusion, you ready for this? Ease and Comfort. He would have sit in his PJs all day on the back porch doing nothing. Ease and comfort. His conclusion, it did not quench the deep thirst in my soul. And, and he goes on. One more test here. He tests sexuality. In verse 8, it says he had many concubines. We, we know from, from the rest of the, the Old Testament that Solomon had like 700 wives. Can I say that one more time? Seven. 100 wives how does that even work i have no idea what what i I just i have no idea but but here's what i do know and, and i want every man to look at me right now he had access to uninhibited sexual pleasure are you getting that uninhibited sexual pleasure his only limitation was his imagination that's it his only limitation. And you know what he's telling you? It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't quench. Like some of us are trying to make it quench, but it doesn't quench. This is his point. It doesn't work. Like listen to his conclusion. This is verse 11 of chapter 2. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold... All was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Do you know what he's saying? That there's nothing in this world that could satisfy you. Now see, we're at a disadvantage because you know what? You don't have unlimited wealth. Solomon did. So he could push all of his chips in and and explore it to the max. But you know what a lot of us think? That if I could just get a little bit more, then I'd be okay. You'll never be okay with a little bit more. This is what Solomon's showing us, that there is nothing under the sun, nothing under the sun that can satisfy that deep thirst in your soul. Your kids can't do it. Your mar- a marriage can't do it. A house can't do it. Things can't do it. People can't do it. Possessions can't do it. A new place can't do it. It's impossible. It doesn't have the capacity for it. God didn't wire the world to work to satisfy you in those ways. Listen to Jeremiah Burroughs. He's a Puritan who wrote a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. 100, about 100 pages on the, this passage in Philippians 4. He said this, My brothers, the reason why you have not got contentment in the things of the, of the world is not because you have not got enough of them. That is not the reason. The issue is not, I need more. But the reason is because they are not things proportionable to that immortal soul of yours that is capable of God himself. Many men think that when they are troubled and have not got contentment, it is because they have but a little in the world. And if they had more, then they would be content. Now listen to his metaphor. That is just as if a man were hungry and to satisfy his craving stomach, he should open his mouth or gape and hold his mouth open to take in the wind. So I'm hungry, I'm going to open my mouth and hope the wind blows in it. He's going to take in the wind and then should think that the reason why he is not satisfied is because he has not got enough of the wind. No, the reason is because the thing wind is not suitable to the craving of his stomach. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying that, the, that the, when, when you start to look for, for possessions and people and place and power to, to be your contentment, to be, to be your satisfaction, it's incapable of doing that. It's not the sort of thing that's meant to satisfy the hunger that's deep in you. I, I love what C.S. Lewis said. He said, if you find that you have a want and a desire deep in your heart that nothing in the world can satisfy, the best possible explanation is that something in another world is supposed to satisfy it. See, that's the point. Nothing in this world can do it. But here's the great news. It's actually supposed to lead you to the thing that can. So we've got to learn what will not satisfy us and, and we're done with this. And we've got to learn what can satisfy our soul." What can satisfy our soul? You see um, Philippians 4.13? I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Do you see that? All things. That that is probably the most abused text of scripture that I know of. That is like what every athlete coming out of the locker room has in his back pocket in hopes that that's going to be the thing that's just kind of going to muster up that last bit of energy he's going to need to get the win. Can I just say, ironically, it's teaching the exact opposite thing that you don't have to win to be satisfied. That's what it's teaching, that you don't have to score the touchdown to be satisfied, that you don't have to win to be satisfied, that you can actually be satisfied if you lose, that your heart could still be just fine. See, all things is referring to contentment. I can do all things in who? In him. Who is the him? The him is Jesus. Paul is pointing us to the one person who can satisfy your soul. There's the one thing that can, act, that can actually satisfy you, that can actually quench that deep thirst in you, in Him, in Jesus. And, and it tells you why, because Jesus strengthens you. Do you know what it means for Jesus to strengthen you? you know what that, that, how that plays out? That does not mean that Jesus like, takes a needle and pumps steroids in you. That's not what it means. It, you know what it means to strengthen you? It means that Jesus has satisfied you. See, for you to be strong means that you're satisfied. Do you want to know the sure, like surefire way? If you want to know how to overcome any and every temptation, do you know how to do that? Be satisfied in Jesus. See, strength equals being satisfied in all that God has promised to be for for you in Jesus. That's what it means to be strong. And listen, this is not like abstract theoretical for Paul. Do you remember what he says in, in Philippians 3, verse 7 and 8? He says, I have lost everything. I have lost everything, and I count them as rubbish. That is like the Greek word for bad stuff like rubbish, junk, garbage. I, I want to say it, but I just can't say it right now. Poop. It's the word for that. He's saying that I count all of these things as that. All of these things that I lost. Why? Because I actually have Jesus. He's saying that Jesus so outshines everything else That even good things seem like rubbish. That even good things. See, this is the testimony of Jesus as well. Do you remember in John 6 when when Jesus is going to say this? If you're thirsty, come to me. Like I am bread. I am living water. If you drink me, you'll never thirst again. Jesus is saying, I am the one thing. Possessions can't do it. Pleasure can't do it. Sex cannot do it. I am the one thing that can satisfy you. So I think maybe we could sum up everything by just asking this question. I think everything comes to a head in this question for you and for me. The, the question is this, is Jesus really enough for you? See, so that's, that's the question. Is Jesus enough for you? See, so the, way, the way we do money and possessions, the way we think about them, you know what it screams? That it's not, it's, it's not Jesus being enough. It's Jesus plus these things, that will be enough. But i got to tell you, it's not Jesus plus anything. That Jesus is actually enough to satisfy the deepest cravings of your heart. And and here's the great news of the gospel. Because Jesus lived a perfect life in place of our imperfect one. Died an undeserved death for you, for our sin. God promises to apply a Jesus that can satisfy the deepest cravings of your heart. He promises to give him to you. He he promises. Here here he is. Enjoy. He, He is yours. You are his. Let me ask you this question one more time. Is Jesus big enough for you? See, for those who are content, the answer is yes. Can I just say that I pray for you that your answer would be yes to that. Amen? Let's pray. So we're going to give you a couple of minutes just to sit under that. I pray that the Spirit of God would just imprint upon you those things that were helpful and wipe away those things that weren't. And and let me just reemphasize this, that if you're not a Christian, if you're kicking the tires on this thing, that that being content begins when God makes you a new creation, when God saves you. And God stands ready and willing to do that this morning if you confess your sin to him, ask him to save you, he is so willing to, to rescue you today. And so we're going to have some guys on the side of the room um, as we stand up to sing in a few minutes, some of our home group leaders and staff. And I mean, if that's you, if, if, if your first step today is, I need Jesus. Like, I, I need Jesus to save me. Then, then I'd encourage you to make sure you talk to one of the guys on the side of the room. And, and if you are a Christian, Let me just ask the question again. Is Jesus enough for you? Is he enough? Is it it Jesus plus something or is it Jesus plus nothing equals everything? So God, I pray that you might be merciful to us in such a way that, that Jesus would loom so large in us and around us that we can honestly say He's enough. My heart is fully satisfied in Him regardless of what befalls me. So God, I pray that You would imprint that upon our souls. You would imprint that upon our souls. And God, for those that don't know You, that they would know that 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 quest for satisfaction is it going to be found in a boy, in a girl, in a marriage, in a job, in, in a house, in, a, in another thing. But that quest for satisfaction is only going to be solved in you. So by your grace, I pray that you would you'd drive this deep. It's in your good name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas.